Hello and welcome to Wellbeings. Today's episode, as always, is brought to you by Jackson White, Attorneys at Law, and by Birdie Scrubs, now open online at www.birdiescrubs.com. Feel free to check them out. They are a fantastic company with a great message. Um, today's episode is very special. Uh, I have Reverend Dr. Carla Cheatham, who began her career in psychosocial services with an MA in psychology, certification in trauma therapy, PhD in health and kinesiology, and MDIV before working 10 years as an interfaith healthcare chaplain and bereavement coordinator. Carla is a national keynote speaker and consultant focusing on emotionally intelligent and resilient professionals and organizations, chair of NHPCO's Ethics Advisory Council, former leader for NHPCO's Spiritual Caregivers Community, adjunct professor at Seminary of the Southwest, and assistant professor for University of Maryland's MS in Palliative Care. She publishes books and videos about resilience, communication, boundaries, grief, healthy leadership, service, recovery, and emotionally competent professionals. We have a lovely discussion. Um, Our intent was to talk about mindful self-awareness and resilience. We got through the mindful self-awareness part of the discussion and then we took a uh, took a little bit of a turn and we talked about IFS or internal family systems it's a modality of of treatment that uh, Dr. Cheatham is getting certified in and one that I recently took interest in and so um, I get a little personal in this episode uh, unintentionally, but uh, Carla had a way of um, drawing some stuff out of me that um, I probably wouldn't ordinarily share. Um, but um, I was happy to do it, and uh, I hope I hope that um, you all get as much out of this episode as I did. So um, you're in for a real treat, and uh, I. Definitely plan on having Dr. Cheatham back. Uh, so here you go, folks. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome <laughs> to Well Beings. Uh, we have uh, a pleasure to have Dr. Carla Cheatham on the show with us today. Carla, how are you? I'm well, Tyler. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. The pleasure is truly all mine. So, uh, Dr. Cheatham, uh, you launched your practice, Carla Cheatham Consulting Group, back in 2012. What was what was the impetus for forming your organization? I'm curious. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I started realizing through my own, I was working in hospice and palliative care at the time and started noticing through our state professional organization that there were professionals who had not had access to clinical training in the emotional competencies of caregiving. It started out largely in spiritual care, realizing there were a lot of chaplains that had not had access to the clinical training that helps them understand the difference between being a parish minister or a faith leader of a faith community, which is a very different uh, calling or a very different job than an interfaith healthcare chaplain that is there to promote and support 
people accessing their own beliefs to mm-hmm. help them through challenging times. So it started there, but then it expanded to all disciplines in all fields. And now not even just healthcare, but across industries, even wow. of, of helping people find their best selves so that they can bring the best of their clinical skills to the bedside or whatever the care relationship is, however it is that they care for other people, government workers, uh, et cetera. So it, um, it was about truly seeing a need and having the last 30 years of my work, my research, my experiences, my screw ups all kind of <laughs> coming together to say, yeah, no, we can do this differently. And uh, well-meaning, well-intended people mm-hmm. not realizing that they weren't being their best selves. And in fact, even sometimes were being dysfunctional or toxic I in see. ways that were damaging. And none of us want to be damaging. So no. Uh, that that became the the start, and it's just expanded from there. Well, congratulations on that. It sounds like it's really, really blown up, and and Thank you me. offer at least a couple, um, I think four, if I remember correctly, uh, curriculums, maybe more. Um, in a nutshell, what are your primary offerings, and what do they entail? I started out teaching a lot, as I said, around spiritual care, and I still do some of that, but that's probably about 10% of the work that I do these days. I uh, do a lot around resilience, emotional intelligence, attunement and attachment and deep listening, a lot around healthy systems and teams and healthy leadership, a lot around systems theory and how that can impact things. Uh, I do a ton of work and presentations around trauma-informed care, both for the sake of teams and the, uh, the, our own potential sources of trauma or pre-existing trauma that can make the caregiving situation more difficult and how it, how to take care of ourselves when in the face, caring for others uh, in the face of their own trauma symptoms and trauma reactions. So a lot around trauma-informed care. Um, those, as you may know, in long-term care were required by Medicaid, uh, CMS, uh, Center for Medicaid, Medicare Services, as of November of 2019, had to be trauma-informed. Mm-hmm. So they are, uh, we're, we're learning more how to do trauma-informed care. Um, I do a lot around ethics, um, including things, sticky things like legally accelerated death. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's a wide, wide variety of topics, but anything that is about helping people know a lot around boundaries and uh, burnout, self-care, things like that, mindfulness, wow. interpersonal neurobiology. Yeah. Any of those, any of those seemingly fuzzy, we would touchy feely things that actually have a lot of science behind them. That's right. That's uh, all of that is right up my alley in the, in the armchair context, of course. Uh, and, and, um, you, uh, so you've, you've created quite a following and you've, you've grown your reach. You started in healthcare and now you're in all types of arenas and you're a highly sought after keynote speaker. This I know, um, what are the types of events at which you typically speak? Or is there a typical, uh, type of type of event at which you would speak? You know, there really isn't. I am, there's a state organization for women, in, in women, infants, and children um, mm-hmm. that that nonprofit that is having me do their keynote speech. I do a lot of the large professional organizations like uh, American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine and Hospice and Palliative Nurse Association, some of those large 
um, organizations. I'll do uh, keynotes, work in current sessions for those kinds of organizations. And then smaller individual agencies, uh, community action agencies in different states. They're the people who provide government assistance with things like utility assistance and rent assistance and job placement and job training. Um, Everyone these days is working with people who are struggling and traumatized and they're realizing that the more grounded and centered and attuned we are and the more emotionally competent we are, that the better the care relationship happens, the greater the satisfaction and the greater the outcomes for everyone involved. And it saves energy, saves time, energy, money, and resources. So people yeah. are getting really clear about the importance of this. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful as well. Yeah. We've come a long ways. There even, yeah, even small agencies that will contact me and say, our leaders are struggling with knowing how to respond to um, our brothers and sisters of color being killed in the streets mm-hmm. and the the influx of social media and people start finally starting to wake up but it's it's traumatizing and how do we how do we support our staff and yeah. that are that are seeing these events played out on the media and how do we support them or we had a CFO and a CEO just about come across each other at the uh, board meeting Uh, going into each other's throats and we're requiring them to get some coaching. When can you meet with them? So I get to do a lot of different things, which is really fun for me. That's wonderful. Well, I feel very fortunate to have you on the show. Um, I, uh, and and another thing, so much of what you teach, it's, it seems like as professionals, we go through so much training in school, so much education, but but we don't touch on these important aspects. Uh, I'm wondering when are we going to start including that in our college curriculums or high school curriculums or or yeah. even sooner? You know, these are important skills. Yeah, no, we are. We already are. It's just not as prevalent yet as we'd like it to be. There are Baltimore area schools where they're doing pilot projects so that. Uh, elementary school kiddos, when they get in trouble for fighting or other um, acts, especially around acts of aggression, instead of sending, instead of suspending them, then the in-school suspension, as it as often has been, or often is called, has become a meditation class. Wow. So they teach the kids to meditate. They teach them about mindful self-awareness so that they can be aware when those feelings are coming up in their body. Mm-hmm. And it's teaching them to regulate and teaching them to calm themselves. So we are we are doing better, we're doing more, and we still have a long way to go. Yeah. I think this pandemic is actually an opportunity mm-hmm. for us to realize exactly how important these skills are and how necessary they are, not just to a time of crisis, but in day-to-day living. Absolutely. If we had been doing this training ahead of time, this pandemic would not be affecting us as a globally as much as it is. It still wouldn't be puppies and ponies. It would still hell us up. <laughs> and we would be more resilient in our abilities to navigate it in a way that would have us thriving rather than just trying to survive it yeah. and struggling quite so much. So I, I think this is an opportunity for us to call to kind of revolutionize the way we do training for professionals and just the average bear, like you said, going through high school and college, having at least some of these training curriculums available to them. 
Wow. Yeah. I sure, I sure hope that we, that we pivot and make this more, uh, widespread, more widely available. I reached out to you. Oh, go ahead. Well, and so, you know, there was a, a story I heard years ago about a man who witnessed another man landing at the airport and greeting his family and greeted his kids one by one and lovingly and gently caring for them and, and just swooping up and daddy, daddy, and, and then turning to his wife and, and looking longingly in her eyes and just having this long, deep, passionate kiss. And the man nearby was like, man, how long have you been gone? And never taking his eyes off of his wife, he said three whole days. <laughs> and the man went, wow, I hope I have a relationship like that someday. Yeah. And the man finally broke kind eye contact with his wife and turned and looked at the man and said, don't hope, my friend. Decide. Wow. So I think we need to, I hear the hope and I, I really think we need to decide and call, how are we going to be a part of making that reality happen? And I think you're taking part in that by doing things like this. I appreciate that. But um, that was that was just the story that I needed to hear today because we can hope our whole lives away, um, but it's, it's, it's in the action where, where it really bears fruit. Oh, I do it all the time. <laughs> I am hoping for my house to get cleaned, but nope, I'm going to have to wake <laughs> up a little earlier and do it. I am hoping uh, that the five pounds I gained over the last few weeks traveling, that those would just fall off, but no, <laughs> not happening. I'm going to have to do something to make sure it happens. Yeah, it's never, <laughs> so sorry. never quite that easy, is it? Yeah. So you're about to ask. Yeah, I reached out to you a couple of months ago, and yeah. and you were just about to embark upon a one-month research and writing retreat. How did that go? It went beautifully in terms of mountain biking and hiking and having <laughs> solitude and quiet time. Um, and I got inundated with some requests for some emergency trainings for some teams that were struggling and answered those, which I was grateful to do, and um, also had another um, a business opportunity that I needed to spend some time nurturing and working on, but I did get quite a bit of writing done. I am still probably a good, uh, I've still got a good, uh, probably 25,000 words to write and a lot of editing to do on the words that I did get written while I was, uh, was away in the mountains. Um, but I am, so I'm carving out time in the coming weeks to try to, to do a bit more each week until I've not just hoped, but actually decided my way into getting that uh, the book finished. But it it was it was a much needed time away for me. I bet because if I if I can't sit and get my own neurochemistry chilled out long enough to really hear myself and get grounded and centered, so that I can speak from that place, then I don't have much business trying to write for others. I hear you. Well, that that sounds. Well, the mountain biking and the hiking and uh, the time alone sounds fabulous to me. The writing sounds painful to me. I've, uh, <laughs> just, I've, Ditto. I've tried. I've tried to write a book. In fact, I've written a manuscript, but it, but oh, nice. th- just the process was it was oh, so arduous, so much harder than I thought it would be. Uh, writing comes naturally to me, but but to to write something of that magnitude is just 
it's just painful. <laughs> I, you know, I have a good, I have a good editor and publicist who helps me with my publishing and, and she's very artful at helping me break it up into chunks so that it's not, so I'm eating the buffalo one bite at a time. Cause I do, I get overwhelmed by the enormity of the manuscript and kind of losing track of things. The book, the first book of stories that I wrote that came fairly naturally, but I also tend to, I, I equate my version of writing as being like um, the gestation period and giving birth. Mm. It needs to cook for a long time in the back of my brain. Right. I need to speak about it, talk about it, experience it, go on hikes with friends where they listen ad nauseum when they say, so how's the writing going? <laughs> and I, I, and they basically, if I had recorded all of those conversations, my books would be published by now. Um, <laughs> but I, and then do more research and just really integrate the information. But, and then as I speak, I'm essentially writing while I process externally, which as an extrovert and external processor that works for me. But then by the time I finally, so I'm really kind of market testing it with mm -hmm. audiences as I speak to mm -hmm. see what is impactful and how it's best clear and communicated for them. And so they, they help me. And then when I finally do sit down and write, I kind of, pop that baby out onto the page and it mm -hmm. kind of often comes out as pretty much a first draft, a final draft Wow! when I, when I put it out. So um, this one's a bit more daunting because the, the need is so great mm. and well, folks are struggling so much that I'm, I, I it's getting a little convoluted when I try to decide which audience am I addressing and which pieces of this am I going to give them in this book? So that's where, that's where I I am past due to call my editor and say, help me help get my brain wrapped around this lifeline. What what were what were your areas of focus? What is this particular book going to be about? This is the information about resilience during challenging times. Oh, yeah, very as timely. Well as definitely as well as so how to not just survive but to thrive through those times. What are the, what does the research say? And then now let's distill that down into tangible, real, easily, to, easy to implement day-to-day -day practices that we can build those muscles to help us improve and increase our resilience as well as emotional intelligence, mm -hmm. how that uh, interacts and then post-traumatic growth. Those are the three that I teach in combo. Okay of how they play off of each other and influence one another to give us the best chance at developing those competencies. Well, I, I can't wait to read it. I, um, it sounds like, it sounds like it's a very, uh, timely writing and I'm sure that it's going to be packed full of, uh, very important information. I don't know if, if you Thank can you. answer this question, but it, as you're writing, is it more of a process? Is it process driven or is it product driven? Are you, if that question makes any sense, are you just trying to get it out there or is it, do you enjoy the process and, and is it more of a journey? I would say both. The process, as you mentioned earlier, can be quite painful. The trying to get to find the space to sit down and get butt in chair time to actually do the piece, the, the part of writing that can be, feel so scary and overwhelming. That part can be not as fun. And once I get into it, I can go hours without looking up or getting up or moving. 
um, I can get so absorbed into it that I just keep going until I, until I don't have any, any energy left. I, so I do enjoy it once I get into it. The, the process of kind of getting into the material, then getting out of it to think and integrate further to collect my thoughts. I love the process. Mm. And it also is very product driven because I see the need and I have material that now after years of speaking and teaching and coaching and the I know how helpful this material has been to, for people, not just professionally, but personally in really transformative ways that helps them be better at what they do, feel more empowered and equipped and confident in what they do. And to allow it to then also impact the way that they show up for themselves and their loved ones. It's, I and especially now when people are, hungry, desperate, hurting for this kind, for things that will be helpful for that gentle voice to say, you've got this, mm -hmm. you can do this. And here's how I love they're it. hungry for it. And, and also we're dying because of it. Even pre COVID there was an epidemic. There has been an epidemic of physicians committing suicide because of the tremendous rates of burnout from what we have been doing to ourselves and each other as an industry. Um, yeah. So we, we've, so there's already was this sense of, <clears throat> excuse me, importance and urgency. And now that weight of responsibility and it feels even greater. So. Yeah, I understand. And it, and it sounds like these are, Everything you write about, these are all things that have helped you immensely. And um, I love how you just want to give that give that back to whomever is is out there, who, whomever stumbles upon it, is seeking for it. Um, yeah, I, I just I love that. I love that you, you that you're excited to get that out there and yeah, I'm excited to read it. Thank you. Well, we find, well, we'll see if I can get it out before the year is over. We, part of what I teach is that post-traumatic growth is about finding a sense of meaning. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we know that hope is a powerful and a dangerous thing. And that hope is what can keep us going. That Frankl quote, you know, the one who has a why to live far can, can live through almost any what. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> the idea being that hope can, can get us through and, I you know, came from a family that struggled with uh, mental illness and addictions and violence. And at the age of 15 was finally breaking the rules of the faith tradition I was raised in and asking, what the hell? I was asking <laughs> why, asking God why. And I felt in that, in that moment, I felt like I, for me, got that still quiet voice inside that gave me an answer that, that, was essentially, look, you may not ever understand why people act the way they do out of their brokenness, but I promise you, if you'll let me heal you, I'll, I won't let any of this that you've gone through be in vain, but I will let you turn around and extend that same healing to other people in a way that helps them too. And so at 15 years old, my reason to stay alive and my reason to get through it and come out the other side of it and heal it 
was so that then I could give that to others. And so that's, that's been the last, yeah. That is so, very, very profound to have that type of awareness at 15 years old. I, I know that I certainly did not have that, that type <laughs> of purpose or awareness at 15 years old. And um, it, I'm, I'm happy for you. I'm happy that uh, all of that has come to fruition. Wonderful. Um, I, I know the answer to this question on this particular uh, retreat, um, but I'm assuming that this isn't the first time you've, you've kind of taken a, a sabbatical from your typical duties and, and dove into the writing process. When you do so, um, do you disconnect from email and social media? It depends. I tend to do about 12 hours of silence once a week where I do unplug. Mm-hmm. I do um, about once or twice a year. I tend to do a solo silent retreat. Yeah. And my favorite place to go is a mountain uh, a cabin on top of the mountain where they hand you a walkie talkie. There's no cell reception. There's no, no TV, no, no nothing. And they say, if, if you get eaten by a bear, call us. If <laughs> there's a fire or a flood, we'll call you. Otherwise we'll see you in eight days. And wow. Where so is this I, at? Uh, this is in the hill country of, of Texas. Okay. Central Texas. And I, I you know, often spend time there. Um, but other times, like in, especially in COVID, I've been able to work remotely. So it, this time I, as I was traveling, I've this last year, I've done quite a bit of travel logs because I, I can travel fairly safely and still be avoid contact from people, um, Mm -hmm. as I travel and camp. Mm -hmm. And so I can still be distance from people and I don't do indoors. I find fire pits outside where people stay, you know, more than six feet away. So I, I find found ways to travel in the midst of COVID. And for those who haven't felt like they could do that, I, they've been living vicariously. So followers who followers and friends who've been living vicariously through the pictures and the travels. So I've been doing a bit of a travel log through social media wow. and yeah. So I'll share kind of my thoughts and reflections and what I'm pondering and photographs and fun and poignant and funny and mundane. So this time around, I uh, did not unplug as much as I normally would. I would stay engaged and connected that way. And then there would also be days where I would speak to and see no one. So except elk and, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, um, and, moose and bison so um i do kind of of do whatever seems whatever my energy level needs in the moment tends to be where i go sounds like you listen to what your body needs i'm going to have to start following you Uh, is it instagram is that your primary mode of social media what's your platform that you share these travel logs on now i those actually are through my quote-unquote personal facebook page which isn't as much personal anymore but it's mm-hmm. it's where i it's it's because so much of it has become uh, combined with the business but i'm happy to share it because i'm fairly open so my my personal facebook page is where i share most of that i share um content related to the business uh, around the emotional intelligences a lot around grief and bereavement and trauma through the hospice whispers social media pages. Okay. And 
through mostly through Facebook, the Hospice Whispers Facebook page, and then on LinkedIn and Twitter, I'll also share that same content there. But my those personal travel logs when I'm when I'm on retreat or traveling, those are more through the personal Facebook page, and folks are welcome to connect with me there. Wonderful. It's interesting to me that uh, your favorite place is uh, in isolation on retreat as an extrovert. I have done I have done one um, one individual retreat uh, for three days, uh, and it was it was um, it was a, a mindfulness meditation retreat. So a lot of sitting. Uh, there, there was no writing, nothing like that. It was uh, mm-hmm. it was it was purely you know for the most part just sitting. And um, as you know, not a lot happens, but everything happens. And, right. and it's been oh, probably two years now since I was able to do, to have that experience. And it's been calling me back. I want to find the time to, to do that. And I'd like to go for even longer. Um, but what a, what a wonderful thing that is just to be there and to be present and to be aware and to observe your thoughts and get to know yourself really uh, get to know your own patterns your own thought patterns um mm-hmm. when i asked you what you wanted to discuss over our email exchanges you said mindful self-awareness um what is this concept and why is it so important so as i teach all of the things that i teach i think where where i'm grateful that i've been able to find some success with the work that I do is that I come from a personal from a personal formation perspective I was seeing the hard skills get taught and learned but then folks not having the internal resources to be able to wield those tools effectively and then therefore being either ineffective or dangerous and so I teach about starting with us first so that then we can show up well for others. And that includes just about everything that we do. Yeah. Yeah. And the, so I, mindful self-awareness really has been an ongoing part of my own personal practice and more the practice of the things that I teach, but I really started getting even further into it with um, the work of Dan Siegel and the neuroscience behind like the neurobiology of we, some of his works. And he draws on the definition of mindfulness from John Kabat-Zinn. And so as I've been integrating more of that work, and as I talk about attunement and attachment, I talk a lot about the interpersonal neurobiology and teaching that to others so that they understand what's going on internally with us and what's going on with someone else when they're experiencing trauma or when we get triggered. The more the more we're able to be aware of what's going on inside of us, just that moment of pause. And the more we practice building the muscles of being mindfully self-aware, then the greater the chances are when something happens and we get triggered that we'll have enough of a pause to catch ourselves before we swing to some extreme reaction. Hmm. And instead, can settle, center, ground, breathe, do whatever the things are that we know that work well for us 
when we start to get hijacked by, you know, when our, by a little uh, amygdala hippocampus freak out um, mm-hmm. and our lizard brain kicks in and we feel that we're under threat, but the things that we know that we can do to self-soothe mm-hmm. so that then we can come back out of that hijack, back to our prefrontal cortex where executive functioning and reasoning happening happen, and then think more clearly about how we want to respond rather than having a knee-jerk reaction that creates wreckage and, and damage for ourselves and others. So, um, so I also, I, I, well, and I also started realizing that when it comes to the components that I teach of resilience, one of them is self-care that I say, isn't just a fuzzy woo concept of, Oh yeah, yeah. No resilience. But then when I ask people what they, when the last time they was that they did resilience and what it was they did, I hear crickets. Because we know all about it, we don't do it well. Big fans, but we don't do it well. <laughs> and the barriers tend to be about that people name across the country. What I hear is that it's about time, energy, and money. And I finally started lovingly calling bullshit on that. <laughs> because I think we think that those are the barriers. I think the deeper barrier is that we don't feel that we're worth it. And so if we, instead of seeing self-care as being about, and I just shared this with a group of people I just did a presentation for on this whole topic, is it's, if we stop seeing self-care as needing to find the time and the energy and the money to go find a yoga class, have the money to pay for it, fit it into our schedules, go to our closets and dig out our yoga pants at the bottom of the pile of the things that need to be mended because the last time the dog was split the inseam and can I still do downward dog? Can I still fit in the yoga pants? I mean, all the barriers that get in the way of our doing the things that we think are self-care. If instead we re-envision self-care as being about being more mindfully self-aware in every given moment, that's what really calms down our neurochemistry. That is what allows us to be more thoughtful. That's what allows us to make better decisions. So I can do self-care by being more mindful with my thoughts, my words, my breathing, my actions, mindful eating, mindful walking. There are all sorts of mindful practices that we can do in the midst of other things that we're already doing. Go into the bathroom, sit at a stoplight, walking through a doorway. Those are things that we're already doing. And if we were doing them more mindfully, that would become our self-care. And none of that requires extra time, energy, or money, just intention. Right. So that's where that came about for me. Right. <clears throat> we just we can just kind of weave it into our into our daily lives. Um, exactly. I, I love how you're conflating um, this ancient practice of mindful meditation or mindfulness with neuroscience. Um, it's kind of like this practice has been around for centuries upon centuries and, and nobody knew why it worked. They just knew that it worked. Mm -hmm. And now we have with, you know, the advent of fMRIs and such, we're able to see how the brain responds to practicing mindfulness 
and and we're able to see why it works Mm -hmm. and and that that i think um gives it gives people some assurance um and it 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 kind of takes it out of the realm of woo woo and into the realm of science something something that we can do um from a practical standpoint that actually helps that actually actually helps and all of the little things that you mentioned um walking through a doorway if we could just if we could just remember every time we touch the door handle right pause be present Mm -hmm. take a breath you know examine our thoughts and then walk through the door it takes another another second that's it exactly Um, and i i teach imagining that the that the doorway has a waterfall coming down through it and let the water of that waterfall wash the negative energy of the day off of you so far the argument you had with your two-year-old about no you can't wear your underwear on your head to school or (laughs) the person who cut you off in traffic or the last patient or client or or employer or employee interaction you had but let those wash off of you when you go into a meeting or into any interaction with others and then when you leave that room to leave that interaction behind to let go, do your due diligence, do follow up, but then to let go of that energy and let the waterfall wash that the energy of that interaction off of you so that we're offloading our stress all throughout the day rather than letting it build up. And if the waterfall is too fuzzy, we would tell people to go with some Star Trek ion cannon just <laughs> sucking the negativity <laughs> off of you. But but yeah, exactly like you're saying, it's just that moment of pause that makes a huge difference huge difference it really does one of the when i talk about mindfulness with folks one of the biggest uh, barriers that that i hear is i could never do that my mind is too busy i could never sit still for a second i could i could never i could never meditate because because my mind's going a million miles an hour how do you respond to that one i say you know i Yeah, I hear that. I resemble that. And the idea isn't to stop the try to stop the brain from doing what it's doing. The idea is to just be present with it. I mean, even John Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness is that moment to moment, non-judgmental awareness, paying Mm -hmm. attention on purpose in the present moment. Mm -hmm. That has nothing to do with stopping or slowing the brain. It has to do with being aware of what the brain's doing. So right. drawing on the work of like Michael Singer from the untethered soul from the yogic tradition, he talks about that crazy inner roommate that we have that constant <laughs> inner dialogue that's running, or I also call it the committee in our heads. Oh yeah. That oh, yeah. The itty bitty, oh, you know what committee? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The saying, Oh, look at that dress. That's cute. Would that, would that be my butt look big? Wait, yeah. John, John was snarling. Why did John just snarl? Was he mad at me? Yeah. yeah. We find out later. No, John was trying not to snot all over us because he was about to sneeze. I mean, so we, but just paying attention. So Singer talks about, Michael J. Singer talks about witnessing that crazy inner roommate and not evicting it, not shaming it, not judging it, but befriending it Mm. and noticing it and recognizing that if we are noticing that crazy inner roommate, then it is not all of who we are, that there's a deeper seated sense of self 
that is witnessing, listening to, observing that crazy inner roommate, yeah. that, you know, Martin Buber, I, thou kind of thing. And so that there's another part of us that we can, that deeper seat of self that can notice the dialogue of the crazy inner roommate, mm-hmm. but not get hooked by it. Yeah. That and and the 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 roommate or the itty bitty committee, um, the that that all originates. I think the Buddha he called it the monkey mind, right? Mm-hmm. Same same concept. Right. And and that insight that you're talking about was really what that was that was the hook for me on meditation, mm-hmm. because my whole life I thought that I was my thoughts. I thought I was mm-hmm. the committee. I couldn't separate the committee from me. And so I thought I was I was that. And then one day I realized if I if I can observe that, then there must be something else that the the I that I thought I was, that's not even me. There's something deeper. There's something yeah. bigger. There's there's this level of consciousness the observer of the monkey mind and that is me if if i can say me i mean sometimes people in meditation circles say there's no me at the center but but there's this consciousness that can observe that right yeah exactly and it's definitely a hook and the relief of that because we like you said i always thought that that was me and then i realized no that's not me that's there's a deeper me the uh, form of therapy that I'm currently getting certified in is called Internal Family Systems based on the work it. of Dick Schwartz. Did you, you, you know IFS? I do. In fact, I, I just listened to Schwartz. It's Richard Schwartz, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. I just I, I just listened to him on Tim Ferriss's podcast. Have you listened oh, yeah. to this? Yeah. I haven't heard that one, but he, he's, yeah, it's, oh. I've listened to tons of his stuff, but okay. I haven't seen the Tim Ferriss one. I'm sure it's great. It, it was fantastic. And it, and he did a session in the middle of the podcast with Tim Ferriss. Mm-hmm. And as he did it, I thought, well, this is something you can do to yourself. And um, and so I, I kind of went through the motions with myself. And I, as family, family systems kind of conjures up notions of your, you know, the family dynamic and your family mm-hmm. of origin. But in fact, right. it's the family that lives within you, so to speak. Exactly. And wow, I had so I had so many breakthroughs calling out these different parts of me. Um, and, and I, I, you know, in my mind's eye, I could even, I could see my anxiety. I could see the, the embodiment of that and I could talk to it. And I sound like a, you know, I sound schizophrenic here almost, but, but, I, but no, I could talk to it and yeah. I could talk to the, the, the <clears throat> anger part of me and, mm-hmm. and recognizing those different parts of me, um, really disempowered them. And I said, and again, coming from the place of consciousness said, Hey, I'll take care of you guys. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be mad. Yeah. And that's, and that's just it. And so you, I, and I, I think I get what you were trying to say in IFS language. It's not disempowering them. It's unburdening them that these parts of us took on these extreme roles and beliefs because they felt like they had to, to take care of us. And they may have served a purpose for a period of time to keep us safe. But then there came a point when it wasn't helping us anymore yeah. to be hypervigilant. It wasn't maladaptive. helping us. 
anymore. Exactly. Maladaptive coping behaviors is what I call them. And so when those things, and might not the parts, but but the the behaviors that come from them are maladaptive coping behaviors. But when we can realize that that's not us, it's a part of us, but it's not all of us. And if we can then, and from the IFS perspective, self-energy, which I hear you, I, I hear you that and others that in more mindfulness circles that there is no, there is no I at the center, but in self-energy in IFS is about the eight C's. It's those, uh, it starts with curiosity, ha- having curiosity about our parts, having com- com- compassion for them, finding a connection with them, having that, um, getting clarity, getting calm, getting, and so just this, this way of finding and defining what self energy is so that, like you said, we don't, we, we say, you don't need to thank you for all the work that you've done to carry this and to try to take care of me. And I so get that you're trying to take care of me and protect me. And thank you for all the work that you've done, because that's a lot that you've carried for a long time. And you don't need to do that anymore. I'm with you now. I've got you. You don't have to do this. I've got it. And letting them, so that unburdening them so that they can, like you said, turn towards you and trust you, that you've got it. Um so that they don't feel like they have to. But the relief that I've heard people say of, you mean that's not me that's feeling X, Y, or Z? Mm-hmm. I mean, my anxiety is not all of me. No, it's a part of you. It's just trying to take care of you. Yeah. And you can palpable the relief they experience yeah. from the shame of thinking that they were just tethered and stuck being, like you talked about earlier, of just being that one thing, thinking that you were your thoughts. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm, I love that you that you've been that you saw the the Ferris interview with Dick. It's great stuff. Yeah, there's kind of this divine synchronicity. It, it's it's it happens to me all the time where I where I find something that excites me, and before I know it, um, I talk to somebody, and and they're into the same thing, and and then it just kind of validates. Okay you were supposed to do that. Um, th- there was a reason. And I did feel a huge sense of relief and a huge yeah. se- sense of release as I went through that exercise. And, it, and I had, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a one and done thing because it, it was hard to face those inner parts of me. Um, and, and it took a little bit of coaxing. I couldn't, I couldn't do it in a one hour session with myself and without a trained professional. It took several yeah. times to, to get certain parts of me to show their face. And, um, yes. but boy, what a sense of relief that I felt. Um, man, yeah. I, that's exciting to me that, that you're getting trained in that modality. Yeah. It really is. Uh, yeah. Cause it's, uh, the gentleness of it. I mean, in IFS language, there were parts of you that it was hard, that it felt hard for them to turn and face these other parts. And self-energy doesn't have any hard time, but there are these protectors that pop up that kind of get in the way and we get to invite them to step back to give us room to focus on the parts most needing attention. I mean, just the, 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 the mindfulness muscles that get built doing that exercise of noticing when we're trying to deal with one part. Mm-hmm. 
and another part comes up mm-hmm. and feels like it needs to come up and get in the way. Mm-hmm. And it's their protectors, their managers, and they're trying to keep equilibrium in the system, trying to keep us from, you know, keep protect other parts from each other or parts from being seen. And when they come up, noticing them and in that very mindful um mindfulness meditation way that we get trained to do of asking them to just just gently asking them to step aside and let us bring our attention back to where we're wanting to focus yes mindfulness and and ifs really dovetail together nicely and and what you just mentioned that's exactly what happened to me as as i called out the anxiety part of myself this kind of discontent kind of grindy anxiety that I that I basically live with as I called that part out um what I what I discovered from that part was that that there was there was anger uh there was there was he that part was anxious because there is there was an angry part uh you know and then I had to call out the angry part, and the angry part didn't want to come out, and 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 it took some coaxing, and and then when I did confront that part of myself, um, it it wasn't. Uh, it took several sessions, so to speak, to 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 engage in a dialogue, um, but it but it was worth it, and. Um, and it and it worked it it worked really well with uh with with a meta practice uh, with mm-hmm. a loving kindness mm-hmm. practice as yes. i brought out those those parts of me um and just to just to explain i know you know what it means but yes. the, the loving kindness practice or the meta practice is um it's it's essentially wishing yourself well and wishing others well may i be happy may i be well uh, may I, may I live, live with, with peace, uh, and then do the same with others. And, and, and so I have been practicing that with myself and, and, and then as I was introduced to this IFS concept, um, I was, I was able to wish those parts of myself well. And, um, I said disempowered, but you said unburdened. And, mm-hmm. and I felt unburdened. I did feel unburdened. And, and I've, I've continued that practice. Again, this is all new to me, so it's only been a couple of weeks that I've been, mm-hmm. I've been exploring this. Mm-hmm. But it, I, have felt, uh, I, I have felt like it's been one of the major breakthroughs in my self-care practices, we'll say. Fantastic. Oh, definitely. Appreciate you sharing that. It's beautiful, and it sounds like you've been doing a beautiful job of starting to get to know your system and starting to identify yourself energy. I would highly encourage more study around it to really use the model. Well, um, even better. It sounds like you've been doing really well. I'm curious when you you're using the languaging of when you called a part out, what do you mean by that? Well, um, so I, I would start with a, a basic, um, how, how I always start my mindfulness practice, my, med- my, my, my mm-hmm. formal meditation practice, we'll say. And, and I mm-hmm. kind of waited till I could, I, I sunk into the zone and, and my thoughts were, were fewer and further apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that spot, I asked 
I asked my anxiety, Hey, um, are you willing to, are you willing to talk to me? And, and it was almost as if I could, in my mind's eye, I could see this little person come out from behind my rib cage. Mm -hmm. And it was like a little body with my face on it. And, um, he talked to me and I, I asked him what he was afraid of. And, um, and then he, he talked to me about, uh, about my, about destructive habits that I, that I have. And I said, well, yeah, I understand that, but that's not me you're talking to. I'm consciousness here. And then it occurred to me, well, if it's not me, then who is it? And then I thought, well, there's gotta be another part in there that's, that is creating this, this cycle of destruction. And, 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 and I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, raping and pillaging. It's not that kind of destruction, but right. so, you know, self-sabotaging behaviors. And, yeah. and I called that part out and, and that was the part that took a little bit more time to, to get out. And so, so mm -hmm. when I say call out, it was more of an invitation to, to talk to me and, oh, and, okay. and, um, and tell me why, why, I, I asked why you, why are you making me feel this way? Why are, why, what is, what are we, what are we doing here? We're all on the same team. Um, let's, let's sort this out so we don't have to keep running this same pattern over and over. It sounds like a beautiful use of the process as you're learning it. And because those, those piece, those parts that are trying to protect us by doing things that are numbing out, shutting down, those are called firefighters. So that once those little exiles that have gotten shut down and pushed away start to get activated and anxious or overwhelmed, those firefighters kick in to try to protect us, whether it's smoking, drinking, eating, overworking, whatever. And they could take lots of different forms, but they're even those firefighters are still trying to, they still have a purpose to try to help and support and help take care of and protect the system. So I was, I appreciate your answering that. I was curious because when we speak of call out, you know, call out culture mm -hmm. is about calling people out on their stuff. It is about, um, and as I read and hear and sense as having more of a shaming, judging aspect to it. So that's why I was curious what you meant when you use the frame. I see. Um, I've been intentionally changing my languaging. So instead of talking about calling people out, I talk about calling people forth to their best selves, yeah. which is more of like you came back and said that it was invitational. I see it as an invitation rather than uh, trying to point out where someone is, is messing up and causing problems. So I appreciate the explanation. It sounds, it sounds like it was done in a very invitational way rather than judging and shaming way. So that's beautiful. Well, thank you. Thank you for that validation. Um, yeah. and I, again, it's just hearing that other people are doing it. It, it, it um, it's validating and, and helpful. Yeah. Um, and it's just a different way of understanding our thoughts Yeah, and under as you know, it's, it's, you mentioned earlier that it can feel schizophrenic or feel like there's multiple personalities or that it's, and so you know that those are very real mental health disorders and, and disorders that can be that people can struggle with. But it's this is about recognizing the different aspects of our personality, if that's easier to accept. Yeah. That come out at different times in different ways when they need to. I'm 
my personality is one way when I engage with certain people and one way with others and all of it's authentically me, none of it's inauthentic. It's just that some situations feel better or safer for me to call on my more playful side. Other times my more playful side would not work well if I were officiating over a funeral. You know, there's, there are, um, it may make an appearance, but it's modulated and moderated by another part that's clear that what people need in that moment is more sensitivity and very minimal and artful use of, of playfulness and humor. So it's just finding all the aspects, aspects of us. But I think the key is coming back to the John Kabat-Zinn definition, that non-judgmental awareness. I was teaching about resilience at Children's National Hospital in DC. I was leading grand rounds, which is basically when all the doctors and nurses and medical folks get together and there's a big, huge lecture. And afterward, they the C-suite pulled me in and said, what would it look like to integrate mindfulness and resilience throughout our entire children's national healthcare system. And I gulped and internally panicked, um, (laughs) trying to catch my breath while externally stayed my calm, coolly collected part came out um, to go, well, yes, we could certainly talk about that. And, and to their credit, I said, find, find a grant, do a pilot project, collect data, use that data to get bigger grants. And thinking I would hear from them in three to five years. Uh, three weeks later, I got a phone call and said, okay, we got the grant. We already have applicants. And we started with about 50 of their cardiology nurses and physicians and child life specialists. And we taught, we developed a curriculum of teaching a modified brief, uh, briefer version of the MBSR, the mindfulness-based stress reduction, we modified that significantly, but teaching them techniques around mindfulness and resilience and self-compassion and attunement and boundaries. And just that they could, we, we broke them up in a train-the-trainer format. So they learned it themselves and practiced it themselves first, and then broke them into triads of, of client, clinician, and observer, and had them practice role-playing with each other teaching skills so that then they could go to the bedside Mm. and practice those skills with the the pediatric patients that they're caring for and the family members and it was gorgeous and it's gone so well we've we've gone through our first i think i'm hoping we'll be starting our third uh, cohort soon so it's been a, a beautiful process so when you were asking earlier about why are we not doing this more I get to remember that there are places where it is happening. I'm just, it's not happening as fast as I want it to. Yeah. Um, yeah. But folks, mm-hmm. folks are hungry for this and they came back all, we did two different sessions and they would come back to the second session of, about a month apart and just buzzing with excitement of how, of stories of how things worked in profound ways. Yeah. So as you talked about the little version of you coming out from behind the rib cage that needed someone to be gentle and present with it. Yeah. Imagine, imagine a hospital full of doctors and nurses that are engaging that way with the littles that are showing up needing care and their parents. That is truly beautiful. Yeah. We're getting there slowly, but surely we're getting there. 
I have had the opportunity to teach a mindfulness course at um, at a skilled nursing facility. I've mm. done it twice now, two mm-hmm. six week courses with the residents there, and um, and you know these these are folks at the end in stages of their lives and and it's never too late you know these concepts were new to them but they they were hungry for it they were hungry for it i have to say fantastic <laughs> i have to say you have a real um you have a you have a gift um i've been very cautious with uh, with who i share my ifs experience with because mm. Not everybody is as woo-woo as I am. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and here I am talking about it with you, and, I, and who knows who's going to hear it. And so um, now everybody knows how woo-woo I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, and again. <laughs> but, but I don't the, mind. It's the, a, the, it's well, but a, the, the parts of people that need to label it as, as woo-woo, there's a part of them that feels uncomfortable with it and feels the need to try to push it away or judge it or shame it. And so the parts that say it's woo-woo, you know, they're just trying to take care of themselves. And we get to say, we hear that you think that it's woo-woo. And <laughs> what are you afraid would happen if you accepted that it's not woo-woo, that this is both ancient and modern neuroscience, and it's incredibly impactful and helpful. What are you afraid would happen if we didn't label it as woo-woo? And instead, so maybe just maybe there could be something here that would help us. Yeah. yeah. No, so so thank you for that. And again, thank you for trusting me with it. I'm yeah. grateful you felt comfortable sharing it. So absolutely. And I know that we're we're past the time that I uh, that that you had promised me. And so um, there were so many more things that I wanted to talk about, but this is what we needed to talk about apparently. So, and we can certainly schedule another time. And since I don't, I don't suffer from brevity. I know I have a part (laughs) that doesn't suffer many parts that don't suffer from brevity. So I greatly contributed (laughs) to this, but we'll be glad to schedule another time to talk. It's been, it's been a delight. It truly has. And I am going to take you up on that. All right. Do reach out. We'll sit, we'll put something in the calendar. All right, Carla, peace, as you would say. You as well, my (laughs) friend. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. We'll talk again soon. Great. Bye-bye. Take care. You've been listening to the Wellbeings Podcast. Tune in every Thursday to hear the latest episode. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. As always, thank you so much for listening.